Hello and welcome to News Hour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service Studios in central London. I'm Tim Franks. President Trump's travel ban has been given a partial reprieve from the Supreme Court. That's our top story, which we'll look at in just a moment. We'll also, in 30 minutes, hear about the British government's latest offer to EU citizens in the UK for life after Brexit. And how do you get Bob Dylan's music to the stage? This is the thing you're dealing with. Like, I think he has 650 songs. I mean, it's just too vast to please everybody, you know. What, what can you do? We'll find out what you can possibly do in about 40 minutes. We begin with something you don't often hear, that there's been good news today for President Trump in the courts, in the Supreme Court, no less. The justices have partially lifted the suspension imposed by lower courts on his controversial travel ban. In other words, the ban can at least in part go into effect. The measure prohibits entry uh, for travellers from six mainly Muslim countries for 90 days and suspends the US refugee programme for 120 days. In a few months, the court will meet again to consider the case in its entirety. In a moment, we'll hear from a legal expert. First, the BBC's Anthony Zerka in Washington. Well, they talked about the president's sweeping authority uh, in national security issues. I mean, historically, the courts have been very sympathetic to presidents exercising uh, their their foreign policy and national security powers. And so the court justices uh, essentially reasserted that, reaffirmed that. They didn't look at uh, the background on the, the travel ban the way some lower courts had done, saying that it was a violation of freedom of religion uh, or that it was uh, poorly implemented, taking a look at Donald Trump's tweets and his past statements. They looked at this purely as a, is it within presidential power? And uh, if it is, then they uh, let it go ahead. So uh, it did re- it did represent a change of perspective from some of the other court decisions we've seen. And uh, what does it mean now in terms of how the executive acts on this? Are, are they going to have to produce a, a revised travel ban or can it just immediately go into effect? Well, I think we're going to see it go into effect uh, with certain limitations fairly quickly. Before this court decision came down, the Trump administration was saying that if they got a friendly decision, they would reinstate the ban within 72 hours. There's been a statement from the Homeland Security Department since then uh, saying that they were going to, they're going to do it in a, in a deliberate, uh, organized, professional fashion. Uh, but I think we'll see it, uh, it begin to be implemented here shortly. And, and the, the thing to look about this is that the travel ban was reinstated for individuals who don't have what the court described as bona fide relationships with a person or entity in the United States. So that means that uh, if it's a person trying to come into the country from one of those six countries uh, and they don't have an existing relationship, as in family in the U.S., or they don't have a job waiting for them in the U.S., or they don't have a school, an American college that they're enrolled in and coming to, then they won't be allowed in. But if, say, you're a student from Iran who is coming over, who is in an American university and they try to get back into the country, the ban will not apply to them, at least according to the way the Supreme Court justices have laid this out. The BBC's Anthony Zerker in Washington. Josh Blackman is Associate Professor of Law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston and a specialist in constitutional law in the Supreme Court. What does he make of the ruling? The first thing to stress is that there was no dissent. None of the justices, even some of the more liberal judges, raised any objection to this ruling. Um, The second thing to stress is that this Supreme Court decision codifies the executive order. 
under the executive order, people with certain close family relationships, people with employment relationships to the United States, and people with uh, a scholastic relations to the United States would have been allowed to apply for a waiver from the travel ban. And if they showed a hardship, they would have been admitted. What the Supreme Court did here was they said, we are going to uh, allow um, anyone who meets these categories into the United States without proving a hardship. So the sorts of people that President Trump wanted to keep out would be kept out. And the sorts of people President Trump wanted to admit will be admitted. Um, in many respects, the Supreme Court's decision reaffirms executive order. It was striking, wasn't it, that it was 9-0. What do you think this tells us about how the Supreme Court views the the president's right to uh, issue these sorts of writs when it comes to national security? Well, I think the thing to stress is that President Trump has lost in court after court after court, judge after judge ruled against him. Here, not a single one of the justices seemed... Uh, uh, offended by the policy. Uh, We didn't have the Supreme Court diving into President Trump's Twitter account. We didn't have the Supreme Court looking at his campaign statements. I think this is a signal to the lower courts, you guys messed up, get back in line. This is not how we treat the president. Um, And even if the president ultimately loses, the way the lower courts have uh, a reason is inconsistent with the court's decision today. Yeah, I I wonder if this actually, I mean, obviously, we're looking at the uh, import in terms of what it means for President Trump, what it means for the travel ban. But in terms of this disconnect between the Supreme Court and the lower courts, I mean, it it seems to be pretty violent. Oh, you're exactly right. Um, The lower courts have engaged what I've called a resistance, where they've seen President Trump as this this existential threat. And I think what the Supreme Court has done today is said, relax, calm down. He's the president. Let's let this policy go go into effect for 90 days. We can come back in October, see what happens then. But there's no reason to enjoin this policy in its entirety uh, 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 during during the summer break. Uh, There were three justices who said that they didn't have a problem with the ban at all. uh, And that as far as they were concerned, it could go into complete effect. One of those was the new man, Neil Gorsuch. What do you read into that? Well, I think Justice Gorsuch, as well as Justices Thomas and Alito, signaled that this ban is entirely lawful and that they would have have let the entire policy go into effect. Um, They did seem somewhat annoyed at the majority because they said the majority doesn't define who has this sort of bona fide, this close relationship, and it might create some administrability problems. But on the whole, um, I think this is probably a victory for President Trump. Those who he wants to have admitted will be admitted. Those who he wants to keep out, now he can keep out. Um, And then don't forget, after 90 days, we may get another executive order. This was but a mere temporary policy. Um, We may get a permanent policy at some point later this summer uh, that will be right back to the courts before you know it. In terms of those who are now going to have to argue their case before the Supreme Court, I mean, up to now, they've been able to... Uh, use all sorts of things which I thought were a, a rich vein of, of materials, such as President Trump's Twitter account. Are they, do you think, going to have to rethink their strategy? Oh, I think they're going to have to rethink that big league, if I may. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court didn't seem at all interested in the president's Twitter or campaign statements. They resolved this purely based on the four corners of the executive order. And under our law, when courts review foreign policy decisions, this is all that courts can do. So I think the lower courts should reassess the extent to which they're looking at Trump's Twitter and and Facebook and everything else when they're making these national security rulings. 
Professor Josh Blackman, uh, who gets my vote for using my favourite adverb, bigly. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has uh, just or is just in the process of uh, becoming the latest world leader to try and strike up a good personal relationship with Donald Trump. My uh, confusion over the tenses is because uh, within the last few minutes he has arrived inside the Oval Office. Um, It's the first face-to-face meeting between the two leaders, although with a combined Twitter following of around 64 million They have already tweeted pleasantries to each other, President Trump calling Mr Modi a true friend. But beneath the 140-character bonhomie, tensions have developed between India and the United States in the Trump era, as Sanjoy Majumda reports from Delhi. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the Honourable Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi! Two years ago, this was the rock star-like welcome for Narendra Modi in the United States as he arrived for a public meeting at Silicon Valley. Now he's headed there again, to Washington, to meet the new American president. And he's not quite sure what to expect. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Earlier this month, Donald Trump announced that the United States was pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. He blamed India for being one of the world's largest polluters at the expense of countries like the United States. India makes its participation contingent on receiving billions and billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid from developed countries. Climate change is only one of many points of contention between India and the Trump administration. There are others, such as its immigration policy. Shriyashi Nag is preparing to leave her home and India. She has just been granted a visa to study computer science at a major American university. She's excited and relieved. Yeah, I was anxious. I actually had, I know someone who got their visa rejected as well, so that gave me a lot of tension before I went for the interview. Like the thousands of Indian students headed each year to the United States, she is hoping to find a job there after graduating. But under Mr. Trump, the US is looking at sharply cutting back on work visas. I'm not sure how it's going to be, especially because I'm not really going to start working this year. It's after two years. And so much has changed over the past year. I'm not sure how it will be two years into the future. So that's definitely a concern. Shashi's mother, Swati Nag, is apprehensive as well. Now looking at the, what is happening in US and everywhere, else, everything has become so uncertain. So that fear is also there whether this was the right decision or not. And there are other issues too. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. As part of Donald Trump's America first First campaign, he wants US firms to stop investing overseas and focus on building up domestic industry to boost jobs at home. But this is at odds with Mr Modi's own Make in India drive to press foreign companies to set up factories in his own country. Dhruva Jayashankar is an analyst 
with the Brookings Institute. The trick here is to find ways to make America's first and make it India more compatible. And there are ways to do that. I think you're seeing this play out particularly in the defense sector where the big U.S. defense firms are trying to convince the White House that moving some of the manufacturing to India because the wages are competitive, because the market is there, it will, will also create jobs in the U.S. That will, I think, be a big part of the message that Modi will try to give to, to Trump, that India is trying to help make America great again. While, again, at, at a sort of a very base level, they do seem to be contradictions. There are ways of managing that. Donald Trump and Narendra Modi have striking similarities. They're both powerful politicians who have often courted controversy and catered to a strong domestic constituency. Mr Modi's challenge will be to represent India's concerns in his meeting with the US President while assuring him that his country is a friend and not a threat. Sanjoy Majumda in uh, Delhi and just within the last uh, few minutes we've uh, had the first pictures of that meeting in the Oval Office and Donald Trump was effusive in his congratulations for what Narendra Modi has done for the Indian economy. This is News Hour. And coming up on the programme... He'll be famous. A legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today was known as Harry Potter Day in future. There will be books written about Harry... Every child in our world will know his name. Indeed they will. Well, nearly every child. Uh, And in uh, about 30 minutes, we'll be celebrating 20 years of the boy wizard who changed the face of children's literature. A couple of headlines to tell you about. As we've been hearing, the US Supreme Court has handed a partial victory to President Trump in the legal battle over his attempt to ban refugees and travellers from six Muslim-majority countries. And Mr Trump is hosting the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Defence and economic cooperation are high on the agenda, but there are major issues dividing the two leaders. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC World Service with me, Tim Franks. Nowhere on earth matters more to more people than the old city of Jerusalem, a tiny space crammed with sites sacred to Judaism, Islam and Christianity. No surprise then that the city has had thousands of years of conflicts between those three great religions. But today there have been loud ructions within leading members of the Jewish community over the Israeli government's decision to freeze plans for a mixed gender area for prayer at the Western Wall, the only outside remnant of the supporting buttress for the biblical era Jewish temples. The plan to create an area for men and women from the more liberal wing of Judaism to pray together has been years in the making. On Sunday, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, shelved them after lobbying from the ultra-Orthodox members of his governing coalition. Anat Hoffman is the chairwoman, chairwoman of the advocacy group Women of the Wall. I'm outraged that a project that we worked on for over three years is now placed in the freezer. And since the Prime Minister added that in order to get it out of the freezer, it will require a new government decision, it's in the very deep freeze. Do you think this is the end of it then? Do you think that there's any way in which uh, the Prime Minister can be persuaded of the case for women and men to be able to pray together at the Western Wall? Yes, I think Netanyahu is pressurable and I'm doing my utmost together with many of my colleagues to try to have him see the error of this decision. Basically what we're saying, if you're not going to implement this compromise that we've reached 
then here is another idea. Let's redivide the existing plaza so that there is an area for men, an area for women, and an area for mixed, for men and women who wish to stay together. I can see why you're upset about the fact that this plan is, is not going ahead. Isn't this, though, just what democracy is all about? He's responding to concerns from members of his coalition. And frankly, if people like you and others in Israel want this decision overturned, well, you can vote Mr Netanyahu out. Well, that's the thing about democracy. that It's measured not just by how well it implements what the majority wants. Democracies, and particularly this Jewish democracy, pride themselves in how they deal with the rights of minorities. Now, when you look at the infrastructure of Israel, the values that we placed in our Declaration of Independence, our tolerance and pluralism, social justice and equality, these are values that matter. And as of yesterday, there's just one way to be Jewish in Israel. There is no equality. And that, presumably today, you still feel yourself to be strongly a Zionist Jew. Yes. And you're also able to belong to a, a reform synagogue in Israel. Yes. Why, in that case, is it so important that you have special access to this one place in Jerusalem, the Western Wall. Why has that become such a totemic demand for you? The women of the wall are made of many women from many streams. Some are conservative, some orthodox, and some reform. In fact, the reform are a minority. We are a community of women, and we've been fighting for 29 years for something very simple. We want to wear our prayer shawls, that's called a talit. We want to pray out loud as a community. We want to read from the Holy Scroll of the Torah, of the Holy Scripture. We want to be able to put on our phylacteries, blow shofar, blow a ram's horn, light a menorah, light a uh, candelabra on Hanukkah. We want to celebrate like every other Jew in the women's section. This request of our community has been encountered by tremendous amounts of violence. First, violence. Bullies at the wall. Both men and women attacked us. That I've been doing things that are so normal everywhere else in the Jewish world. But at the holiest site, the only holy site of the Jewish people, that's where I'm not allowed to do it. It makes no sense. Annette Hoffman, chairwoman of the group Women of the Wall. Salvador Dali was an artist with a lurid imagination, a theatrical lifestyle and a magnificent moustache. He became one of the champions of surrealism and one of the most recognisable painters of the 20th century. He died childless in 1989. But now, almost 30 years after his death, a judge in Spain has ordered that his body be exhumed so that his remains can be used for DNA tests in a paternity case brought by a woman called Maria Pilar Abel Martinez. Dr Alex Rosenberg is a former chairman of the Salvador Dali Research Centre in New York. What does he make of the case? Well, I think it's a very strange occurrence, and uh, it's hard for me to believe any of the facts that are asserted here. What, what do you case. mean? You, it's hard to believe I, that he fathered a child? 
Yes, because of the years that I knew him, we always accepted him as being asexual. Right. Um, well, asexual is a strong term. I mean, you you suggesting that he had no interest in the affairs of the body. No, I I would assume so. I mean, uh, Gala ruled him like uh, a czar. You're talking and, about his uh, wife. Yes. And so I I don't believe that she would ever have allowed such a thing. And uh, furthermore, the women I saw him with or the transvestites and other assorted types, there never was a sexual connotation. He liked to be with beautiful people. That is true. But I've never, never seen him uh, kiss a girl or, or in any way uh, be intimate with them. When did you know him? From about 1969 to 1975. Because this woman who's claiming that she was Dali's daughter, I mean, she was born in 1956. So I, you know, maybe he changed by the time you, you got to know him. It's possible. Anything is possible. But uh, considering what I've known, I would say that it's very doubtful. It's hard for me to imagine it. In terms of the man himself, I mean, he he was a one of the most prominent artistic figures of the 20th century. I guess there will be some of our audience, um, given that he died almost 30 years ago, who may not be quite as familiar with him as others. Um, what was it about him that meant that he did have such a hold that he was so instantly recognisable? Well, his work was brilliant. I mean, he was one of the greatest surrealists of our time. And he was a personality that very often he believed that publicity was more important than talent, and that has not served him well. It's only now that his reputation is growing so, because people didn't regard him very seriously, especially the academic world. Because he was such a showman. That's right. Do you think there's a part of him, given that he was such a showman, given that he had such theatricality about him, uh, this this may sound like an odd question, and I can't quite believe I'm asking it, but do you think there's part of him that would quite relish the idea that he's back now, centre stage, as a result of oh, this paternity suit? I think he would be so pleased that this suit is going on, you can't imagine. He'd love to be in the press. The whole thing was based on getting publicity. So this thing, this occurrence, I think, would be right up his alley. Alex Rosenberg talking about Salvador Dali and some news just in from Washington uh, with the Senate uh, considering whether to uh, uh, have a vote on uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader's uh, new health care bill. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said that uh, the bill would... Uh, reduce health care costs by $321 billion over a decade, but would also leave uh, 22 million further Americans uninsured. This is NewsHour. Thank you for downloading this podcast edition of NewsHour. We have plenty of other podcasts here on the BBC World Service. The Conversation. Each week, two women from two cultures talk about the passion or experience they have in common. Next on News Hour, we'll be looking at the new British offer to EU nationals in the UK. First business news and shares in the US firm, which supplied cladding for London's Grenfell Tower, suffered a sharp fall today, down more than 10% at one point. That fall followed reports over the weekend querying how much executives at the company, Arconic, knew how flammable some of their cladding panels were. Similar panels tested in high-rise buildings across the UK have failed safety tests in recent days.
Sajid Javid, the British local government minister, called for further and faster testing of all such cladding. The fact that all samples so far have failed underlines the value of the testing programme and the vital importance of submitting samples urgently. The testing facility can analyse 100 samples a day and runs around the clock. I am concerned about the speed at which samples are being submitted. I would urge all landlords to submit their samples immediately. Well, Arconic announced today that it was ending global sales of the uh, cladding product uh, that it produces for use in high-rise blocks. Niall Rowan is CEO of the British Association for Specialist Fire Protection. It's interesting that prior to that, they had literature on the website saying it could be used in certain parts of the world and not in most parts of the world, but that it could be used in the UK. I think clearly they've taken a corporate responsibility role or view to... Um, and make sure that nothing like this can happen again that's associated with their product. Uh, my members, which are manufacturers and contractors in passive fire protection, I'm always saying to them, you know, some, to some extent you can't guarantee what people will do with the products you sell, but you have a responsibility to warn people of the limitation of the use of that product. Presumably this stuff was tested before it was used. That may be the case. It may not always be the case. If it was tested for limited combustibility as required under the approved document, then it would not have passed. And as we see, the number keeps rising by the hour and every single one has failed. Has there been a view from inside the industry that perhaps British regulations are different, are maybe not as rigorous as other countries? Generally speaking, the regulations are pretty good. A UK fire safety record it's generally pretty good. It's dropped, fire deaths have dropped from 800 in the, a year in the 1980s down to about 300 now. I would say, though, that sometimes the whole process by which products are brought to market and then approved, that's a bit of a grey area that could do with tightening up. And what's cladding used for? Is it mainly for cosmetic purposes or is it for it, it, heat it, insulation? It, what, what, what's yeah, what's I mean, the idea a number, behind a number it? Of The drive behind it, as well as cosmetic, is the green agenda in order to make buildings more thermally efficient. They're cladding them with foam materials or mineral materials on the outside and then with cladding to finish with. And you've got to, when you look at the cladding and when you look at some of the foam materials, you've got to question the wisdom of that. Niall Rowan, CEO of the British Association for Specialist Fire Protection. You're with the BBC and live from London, this is NewsHour. I'm Tim Franks. The British Prime Minister Theresa May had a message of reassurance for three million people today. That's the number of European Union citizens living in the UK. Many of them worried about their position after Britain withdraws from the EU. With Brexit negotiations just underway, Mrs May said she wanted to put their anxiety to rest, as she put it. We'll hear from one of their representatives in just a moment. First, the details of the British government's proposals as set out in Parliament today. Elena Garnier is our political correspondent at Westminster. Fresh from the EU summit in Brussels at the end of last week, where Theresa May had set out the broad principles of her offer, the Prime Minister came to Parliament to promise to make it as easy as possible for EU nationals living in the UK to secure their rights after Brexit. 
Mrs May told MPs she wanted to give reassurance and certainty to the 3.2 million EU citizens in the UK who she said were an integral part of the economic and cultural fabric of the country. I know there's been some anxiety about what would happen to EU citizens at the point we leave the European Union. Today I want to put that anxiety to rest. I want to completely reassure people that under these plans, no EU citizen currently in the UK lawfully will be asked to leave at the point the UK leaves the EU. We want you to stay. Spelling out her offer, the Prime Minister said all EU nationals living in the UK lawfully for at least five years will be granted so-called settled status, guaranteeing their right to stay after the UK has left the EU. They'll be able to live, work and study just as they can now. And they can expect roughly the same benefits in terms of access to pensions, welfare and healthcare as UK citizens. EU nationals who've been in the UK for less than five years will be able to carry on living in the country and then apply for settled status once they've clocked up five years of continuous residence. And there's a promise there'll be no cliff edge, with EU nationals being given a two-year period of grace in which to make their application. The Prime Minister stressed that the offer was made on the basis that it would be fully reciprocated by the remaining 27 member states, giving certainty to the 1.2 million British expats living on the continent. And Mrs May answered the question many had been asking about what would happen to family members of EU citizens who are living abroad. No families will be split up. Family dependents who join a qualifying EU citizen here before the UK's exit will be able to apply for settled status after five years. And after the UK has left the European Union, EU citizens with settled status will be able to bring family members from overseas on the same terms as British nationals. Well, Mrs May might have set out her stall, but of course this will need to be negotiated with Brussels. And one of the biggest bones of contention, who will apply the rules of any new system? The European Commission says it should be through the European Court of Justice. Ministers, however, are adamant that the European Court will not have jurisdiction in the UK after Brexit and that it will be a matter for the British courts. Eleanor Garnier at Westminster. So how did these new proposals go down in Brussels? Our reporter is Adam Fleming. Theresa May received a lukewarm response when she outlined her ideas to her fellow leaders in Brussels last week. The details haven't gone down much better today, with the EU's chief negotiator Michel Barnier asking via Twitter for more ambition, clarity and guarantees. In other words, more rights to be guaranteed, more information about the process EU citizens will have to go through and whether there's a role for the European Court of Justice, a big element of the EU's opening offer made earlier this month. The European Parliament will vote on the final deal and its Brexit coordinator, Guy Verhofstadt, said that today's document contained limitations that were worrisome. He thinks EU citizens remaining in the UK should have a status above that of immigrants from non-European countries. The BBC's Adam Fleming in Brussels. So what's the view of one of those EU citizens inside the United Kingdom? Micah Bone is German and lives in the southwestern English city of Bristol. She's co-founder of a group called The Three Million, which campaigns for the rights of EU citizens in Britain. Well, they've kept us waiting for... For a year, exactly. And um, we welcome that finally there, there is a proposal on the table. 
but we the three million feel that this somewhat falls short of expectations it doesn't quite feel finished and there's still lots uh, of details that remain unexplored and unexplained such as what for example, it talks about settled rights and it talks uh, about giving us a new system to register EU citizens. They haven't given any details on what that system would look like. What they have said is that the current very cumbersome system that has been used will be scrapped. That's a bit of a blow to hundreds of thousands of worried people who've often at great lawyers' expense tried to fulfill the current criteria. Now the government has just said this will this will not be sufficient to get this new settled status that we will all have. But they're suggesting that the new system might be considerably better. I mean, the, the, the 15-page policy paper talks about a light touch online system. So, I mean, maybe you won't need to retain lawyers at great expense. No, I guess you're right. But of course, over the past year, people have done so. For them, it's it's a bit of a blow because, you know, they could have done with a statement like this about a year ago. And because the government still hasn't worked out the details, we actually met to, today with representatives of the Home Office. They haven't worked this out in detail. And um, that, that begs the question, well, what has happened over the past year? Well, I suppose in the in the government's defence, they there is an argument as well that they, they needed to wait until the negotiations began. The negotiations have only just begun with the rest of the European Union. You know, it's all very well for the British government to say we will be willing to give EU citizens inside the UK these rights, but it remains to be negotiated what reciprocal rights British citizens in the other 27 member states of the EU will get. And so inevitably, the details are going to have to be bashed out. Yes and no. I mean, the, the EU has proposed a very, very comprehensive set of rights. It's tailored both for us and about for our counterparts, the British in the EU, who, who were hardly mentioned today. And uh, that is very, very comprehensive. They, they've clearly been prepared for this moment. Also, we've been talking to uh, the government for over a year now about the fact that the current system is discriminatory, is complicated, and leads to massive problems further down the line. It would take 150 years to register people. So I feel that uh, it would have been good to have developed something that could be rolled out much more quickly. Michael, I know when I've spoken to you in the past, you've said that you feel strongly that you want to stay in this country. The United Kingdom is your home. It's where your family is. Given what you've said about your disappointment about how the process has been handled over the last 12 months, does it make you feel differently about the United Kingdom? It really does. I have to say it it saddens me, the things I read in the press. And I'm not naive in, to think that this is how the British population think. But at the moment, I don't quite see how we, how our voice can get through this fog of tabloid hype and posturing. And I just hope that as negotiations are underway, the tone has already been more conciliatory and that, that will somehow trickle down into the UK press. I'm very worried how the EU is portrayed in the British press because part of my identity is European. You know, I have family in Germany. I have friends in France. Part of my identity is under threat. And, and I'm hoping that we will find a way in Britain to embrace a European identity in future because we, we do belong together and we face so many issues together that this is hopefully just a, a massive glitch in what's to come. Micah Bone from the campaign group The Three Million. The Nobel laureate Bob Dylan is famously protective of his music, but 
unusually, he's given permission for his songs to be used on stage in a new play. Girl from the North Country is set during America's Great Depression of the 1930s. The play will have its world premiere next month at the Old Vic Theatre in London. It's been written and directed by the award-winning Irish writer Conor McPherson. And during a break in rehearsals, he's been talking to our arts correspondent, Rebecca Jones. This is the thing you're dealing with. Like, I think he has 650 songs. I mean, it's just too vast to please everybody, you know. Like, what, what can you do? Sometimes you feel so low down and disgusted. It's almost too frightening to contemplate, actually. But Conor McPherson has risen to the challenge. Five years ago, Bob Dylan's record company got in touch with him to see if he'd be interested in using the musician's songs in a theatre show. The writer, best known for his critically acclaimed play The Weir, was taken aback. He'd never written a musical before. Initially I was a bit puzzled because it didn't feel to me like Bob Dylan was that kind of jukebox artist, you know, Broadway musical kind of show. But they said to me, well, it wouldn't have to be that. It could be anything you want it to be, really. Like a, stone. a few weeks later, Conor McPherson had an idea. So I wrote it down and then I got a message back from them a few days later saying that Bob Dylan had, had read it and wanted me to go ahead and do it. So I knew then that if it was something that he approved of, then we were OK. And Conor McPherson has now allowed us into the first rehearsals with Kieran Hines and Shirley Henderson. What? Shut up. Oh, well, you have to be rude. Oh, you think this is rude? You ain't seen rude. You think I care, huh? About your little lady woman up in your attic. Well, the pressure's down. The boss ain't here. He's gone So I had this idea to set a play in a, in a boarding house during the Depression in Duluth with people who are living there trying to survive or drifting through because they've nowhere else to live. Elizabeth, you're crazier than a ship's rat, but you ain't stupid. Now, you know. You know, if I don't get that money, the bank is going to take this place and we're going to be like dust in the wind here. Huh? What's a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this? It's set in the town where he was born, so in a sense it's like it's all the, this music pre-exists Bob Dylan. It was all in the airwaves, just waiting for him to be born. When the rain is blowing in your face. How did you choose which songs to include? What I like to do is I like to have them on a player with your headphones and where I live it's beside the sea in Dublin and uh, it's nice just to walk for five miles and just listen to a lot of music. Make you feel my and you find it the ones you keep coming back to and then, you know, you're sort of meditating, you can kind of see them in the world of the play. It's fair to say this is not Bob Dylan's greatest hits, but you have got a few hits in it, haven't you? Yeah, we have. I want you. I want you, I want you so There are some songs that I'm sure everybody would know and then I think there will be songs which people who don't have all his albums are probably going to hear for the first time. I think we have a song from every decade right up to the most recent would be Duquesne Whistle. Listen to that Duquesne Whistle blowing gonna sweep my world away. It's real poetry, his work, and he always steps through the right door musically. It's very inspiring. 
the playwright Conor McPherson. He was speaking to Rebecca Jones about the pleasures and challenges of writing a new play featuring songs from Bob Dylan. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story here on NewsHour. The US Supreme Court has handed a partial victory to President Trump in the legal battle over his attempt to ban refugees and travellers from six Muslim-majority countries. Josh Blackman from the South Texas College of Law in Houston told NewsHour that the ruling was a clear reprimand to the lower courts. Uh, We didn't have the Supreme Court diving into President Trump's Twitter account. We didn't have the Supreme Court looking at his campaign statements. I think this is a signal to the lower courts, you guys messed up, get back in line. This is not how we treat the president. A couple of other headline stories we've been looking at. Mr Trump is hosting the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. Defence and economic cooperation are high on the agenda, but there are major issues dividing the two leaders. And the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has told EU citizens living in the UK that they can stay after Brexit, but the European Union says her guarantees don't go far enough. This is NewsHour from the BBC World Service, and it was on this day in 1997 that the first instalment was published of a planned fictional series. The print run was just 500. The book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, conceived by J.K. Rowling as she sat on a, a delayed train to King's Cross in London and written in cafes across the Scottish city of Edinburgh while her baby slept in a pram. From that first slender print run, the seven-book series went on to sell more than 450 million books worldwide and uh, spawned a franchise of eight blockbuster films. To commemorate the anniversary, here are a few voices from Potter fans, BBC colleagues and even J.K. Rowling herself, speaking after the first book became something of a success. He'll be famous, a legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today was known as Harry Potter Day in future. There will be books written about Harry. Every child in our world will know his name. In retrospect, it's quite an astonishing moment that this single mother sort of living off benefits in Scotland wrote this book that started this global phenomenon, this global business. Joanne wrote most of her book in an Edinburgh cafe. It's very lonely sitting at home all day on your own with a computer and if you come out and are surrounded by other people then you you feel like you've seen other human beings during the day. (laughs) You've Um, got friends. Exactly. So tell me what was it like when you saw your first book in the shop? That was the best moment of all. Better than anything that has come since was me seeing it and it was a real book in a proper real bookshop and it was wonderful. It really was. I mean, it's almost unparalleled, isn't it? 450 million copies sold. I think it's 70 or 80 languages it got translated into. It spawned new words that have gone into the dictionary. And you can't forget how rich it made J.K. Rowling. I think she's worth £600 million. It's interesting as well, though, that that the people who grew up with Harry Potter, who were small children when Harry Potter first launched on the world, it's made an impact to the way they see the world, hasn't it? I think there's there's quite a few things you can kind of draw out of that idea. First of all, there's a killing curse. The killing curse is very popular between the Death Eaters and Voldemort. Hi, my name's Anya and I am eight years old. I'm the biggest Harry Potter fan in the world, if not universe. I have read all the movies. I have 
for the films and I have been to the studios. I first known Harry Potter because my friend told me all about it and first I was like who is Harry Potter then when I read all the books seen all the films I was like that was amazing some of the Harry Potter fans paying tribute to uh, the Harry Potter franchise and uh, among the people speaking there you also heard Joanne Rowling herself talking about writing her first book and today she tweeted 20 years ago today, a world that I had lived in alone was suddenly open to others. It's been wonderful. Thank you. The Chinese poet and human rights campaigner Liu Xiaobo was jailed in 2009 on subversion charges after calling for greater democracy in China. A year later, while in prison, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Today came the news that Mr Liu was being moved from jail to hospital after being diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. Professor Perry Link is a China scholar at the University of California, Riverside, and has translated Liu Xiaobo's essays and poems. It's a shock to me and to all of his friends that, that this has happened. And uh, the technical thing that's happened is that the Chinese government has allowed him what's called bao wai jiu yi, which means vouchsafed to the outside for medical purposes. That doesn't imply that he can leave the country. And in fact, he hasn't yet. He's in a hospital in Shenyang, which is the capital of the province where his prison was. They won't let him go to Beijing because it would cause too much of a political uproar, I think. So they've said, you have to stay in Shenyang. But the sad part is that the cancer appears to be you used the word terminal. I think that's right. It's inoperable and non-chemotherapyable, uh, if that's a word. So his spouse, Liu Xia, who's also suffered these last nine years, she's been under house arrest. I saw her just recently on the web uh, weeping that this is the end. And indeed, it looks as if it is the end. Clearly, though, he is a, a man who, at least out of the country, carries enormous weight and power, because presumably that's part of the reason why the Chinese authorities didn't simply want him to die in prison. Yes, he has quite a reputation around the world. His name has been blocked for recent uh, years inside China, so some young people don't know about him. But I think you noted in the intro that he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, and he enjoys immense respect around the world. Uh, the regime offered him a few years ago the uh, the deal that he could leave the country. They would let him out of prison on condition that he also leave the country so that he could be an exiled dissident. And he turned that deal down. So it's not clear to me that even if he got permission now to go overseas, that he would take it. But most of his friends overseas, the Chinese so-called dissident diaspora, and me, by the way, wish that he would come out uh, he, he to, to receive his prize and also to be able to speak freely about what's been on his mind. Sure. He, he won his reputation or, or started his reputation back in 1989 with the Tiananmen protests. I just wonder whether, you know, reflecting on China now uh, and the the grip that President Xi Jinping has on the country, whether you feel that perhaps democracy and human rights has taken a step backwards even from then? 
Oh, yes. There's no question that the clutches that the Xi Jinping regime has put onto the civil society is tighter, much tighter than it was in the late 80s. Of course, the massacre in 1989, where Liu Xiaobo was a participant, was a turning point. Because after then, the regime signaled to the populace that you can have freedom to make money and you can be free to express patriotic thoughts, but you can't touch things like political thought or even unapproved religion. And Liu Xiaobo has been a very astute critic uh, of these sorts of rules. His essays, he is a poet and a good one, but his essays analyze Chinese society as well as I've seen anyone do it. Professor Perry Link, the translator of Liu Xiaobo's essays and poems. He's also a China scholar at the University of California, Riverside. And he brings this edition of News Hour to a close. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London, thanks very much for your company. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.